Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Good evening and welcome to Save the Nation with Professor David Flint. David is away this evening, so we are using his slot tonight to show you a fantastic interview he did two weeks ago with one of Australia's newest MPs, Liberal Democrat member of the New South Wales Legislative Council, John Ruddick. Ruddick is one of the most significant politicians in the nation right now having for years been a fighter for Liberal principles in the Liberal Party and even tried to reform the party to make it more democratic. When all that failed, Ruddick left and joined the Liberal Democrats. In this interview, Professor Flint points out that were he alive today, Liberal Party founder Sir Robert Menzies would, like Ruddick, be a member of the Liberal Democrats. Professor Flint and Ruddick cover much ground here, including education, Julian Assange, the voice to parliament, and much, much more. Ruddick has many innovative ideas that must now be taken seriously, and not only in New South Wales. Incidentally, he will make his maiden speech in the New South Wales Parliament next Wednesday, June 28, and he is promising it will be a significant occasion. So here are Professor Flint and John Ruddick starting their compelling conversation with the King's coronation and what it means for Australia. The, the big event recently for all of us has been the coronation. Did you watch it? I did watch it on Sunday night with a handful of good, close friends. And, um, uh, you know, nobody, nobody in world history since probably the pharaohs puts on the pomp and pageantry more uh, brilliantly than the British. And isn't it wonderful how the ceremony hasn't changed fundamentally, but the institution of the monarchy has changed so much? Absolutely. Look, it really is, it really is a link with our ancient forebears. And it's wonderful to think that the, 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 you know, the world has changed around them so much, but since 1066, you know, the, this, this institution of the coronation is largely unchanged. And you know, uh, David, I'm hoping you can get through to the 1,000 year anniversary of 1066. Hopefully we can get you through to 2066, because that will be a big celebration. Now, how do you think the king is going, Charles III? Well, look, I have been, when he was the prince, I was publicly critical of him for being uh, 
a, a political figure. I am a strong believer in the principles of constitutional monarchy. Uh, and I was worried before he became the king that his political activism would continue. So I'm thrilled to see that he did say days after he became the king that his days of a, he signaled quite firmly that his days as a political activist were behind him. And I'm very happy to see that it's been, I think, eight or nine months since then. And he has, uh, he has stood by, uh, firmly by his um, constitutional requirement to be uh, utterly apolitical, and that is a big relief because I want the constitutional monarchy to be successful. You're in a key position uh, as, a, as a Liberal Democrat in the Legislative Council, not only in this state, but I think that what you say could be noticed in other parts of the Commonwealth. So for you, what are the big issues that you are most interested in? Okay, well, look, the Liberal Democrats are a libertarian party, and libertarianism, uh, you know, there, there are, uh, there are right-wing libertarians and there are left-wing libertarians. The truth, and I'm a right-wing libertarian, the truth is that we actually arrive at the same conclusions on almost all subjects, except that we just have different emphases. So the, the, the left-wing libertarians will be sort of more focused about police oversight um, and, you know, drug reform and things like that. Now, whereas the right-wing libertarians are more concerned with, um, um, you know, the, the state of the budget and, uh, you know, and things like that, and freedom of speech very much. Now, all libertarians agree with belie believing cutting uh, taxes, spending, regulation and debt. So that so when, whenever a bill comes up, and I think there was a bill in a couple of hours, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll simply be asking, you know, well, what is going to reduce the size of the government and what's going to increase the power of the of the uh, citizens? Assange, on the other hand, uh, you know, he's he's guilty of being, you know, a journalist. Uh, and I think that, you know, look, you know, the, 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 the left wing media for several years celebrated Julian Assange like he's this superhero. Uh, now, the left have uh, very sadly dropped him, or not all of them, uh, but it, it, it's, it's the Assange issue is no longer a celebrated cause because he exposed uh, the extraordinary geopolitical corruption of the Clintons uh, with by WikiLeaks. So they've sort of forgotten about Julian Assange. Well, I think, you know, that we should be very much, um, you know, and I, I think Albanese does want Assange home. And I think that Assange would have been very helpful in the last three years during COVID. Uh, so that's an important issue. Now, we've got this other issue of the, uh, the voice is just around the corner. And... Uh, the, the Liberal Democrats are very strongly opposed to the voice. Now, now uh, we, we believe in treating people, uh, the, the governments at least, should tr treat people at, on a race-blind basis. We should have no regard for people's ancestries. We care about people today and we care about their future. But we, we think that someone's race is of incidental interest to them personally and maybe to their, their family and friends. But it's not an issue for the government to be interested in. And we think that all those left-wing programs that have been happening for a very long time now, for half a century, we believe that, you know, this inculcating this idea that the Aborigines are, um, 
uh, victims, okay, is very debilitating. And we think that, that the voice is going to continue that. Uh, and when it comes to the voice, it's interesting to go back to the 67 referendum and find there Menzies resisting the Commonwealth taking over the power to legislate with respect to Aborigines. And the Commonwealth took over the power to legislate with relation to Aboriginal matters, which Menzies warned would create an enormous bureaucracy in Canberra, do nothing to help the Aboriginal people. I, I think, uh, I, I remember in the, in the uh, Republic referendum, Senator Vanstone went round the country saying that if Sir Robert Menzies were alive today, he'd be a Republican, which was a ridiculous proposition. But uh, I think that there is no doubt if, that if Sir Robert Menzies were alive today, on the basis of what he said, he would be yeah. in complete agreement with the Liberal Democrats. I noticed that the Liberal Party in New South Wales has curiously left it, uh, it has no position on it, it's left it to each member to make up their own position, as I understand it, which I think is a curious position on a, a matter of some significance. Mark Latham, when he was leading uh, the One Nation Party in the election, made a big point of, uh, of education as a matter which needed urgent reform, and uh, I think you would agree with that. Ah, yes. Well, look, one, one thing where the Liberal Democrats very much stand out from every other party in the country is that we believe in the concept of school vouchers. Uh, now, now uh, and most people in Australia are not even aware that this is an option. There is there's a revolution happening across the United States as we speak, a real bushfire, to use Australian language, of bringing in these school vouchers. Now, how they work is this. At the beginning of every uh, calendar year, the beginning of every school year, the government will give the parents uh, of all school-aged children a voucher, or let's say it's a certificate that might, that might be worth $7,000. And it can only be cashed in at a school. Okay, and so the, so the parents then decide, what school do I want to send my child to? Now, nobody loves their children more than their parents. Okay, certainly more than the bureaucrats in the Department of Education. And so what we have at the moment, we have a very, very uniform uh, schooling system where the kids largely get the same education. Now, under the school voucher system, there would be an enormous amount of diversity in education because kids are diverse, humans are diverse. And so there will be some kids that happen to be gifted in mathematics or art or sport, or they might have a entrepreneurial mindset from an early age. So there's schools, the parents will say, well, look, we're going to use our $7,000 voucher to send our kids to this school uh, where we think that they will really flourish, their natural talents will really come to the fore. Now, that, what it means is we can basically shut down the Department of Education. We need a few bureaucrats to administer the $7,000 voucher, but it wouldn't be much. And the parents, the power would then be in the parents. Now, there will be lots of parents who will say, well, I'd like to, my kid to keep going to their normal school, the school they're going around the corner now, and that's absolutely fine. There might be a religious school. There might be homeschooling. Now, Milton Friedman, the great Milton Friedman, first proposed the school vouchers in the 1950s, long time ago, and, and, and he made the intellectual case for school vouchers. And ever since then, uh, people on the right have said, well, it's a really good idea, those school vouchers. But even during the Reagan era and the Gingrich era, and the Gingrich era was sort of more important in terms of you know, legislation that affected America, 
they did, no states introduced school vouchers. But as of right now, uh, there's there's like two or three states which have just introduced it very shortly, and there's about another dozen states where it's weaving its way through the state congresses. Now, why why did uh, are these school vouchers taking off now? It's because of a little thing called COVID, and so the parents were stuck at home with the kids for an extended period. They were seeing what their kids were being educated with, and the mum and dad said, "Well, I'm horrified with what they've been taught. Uh, you know, all the uh, the Black Lives Matter stuff and all the you know sexualisation of young kids." And so they thought, "Well, there's got to be a better way." This is good policy because I, I think, look, we, we've had very left-wing people running the Department of Education. They've been very smart about this in the last two generations, the left. They've thought, look, if we want to have long-term change, if we really want to have a march through the institutions, uh, well, you know, the best, the best way to do it long-term is brainwash the kids. Literacy and numeracy seem to be significant problems now. I can remember, I'm old enough, to remember a primary school in which, in a class of um, a range of boys of different abilities, because they went to different resulting schools, but every boy, every boy in a class of uh, 40 or 50, every boy was literate and every boy was numerate. And how I know that every boy was literate and numerate is the teacher made them stand up and read, the teacher made them do exercises on the board, and it, it was a, a class in which the teacher taught, the teacher maintained discipline, the teacher had a cane, and uh, it was a very a very obedient but very proper atmosphere in which we actually learned, and it worked very well on a small amount of money compared with what is poured into education today. The education system at the moment is, you know, even if you go to a private school, uh, it's very much the Department of Education's bureaucrats set the agenda on what the kids are going to be taught. And it is increasingly political and left-wing at a young age. Uh, the Australian Federation is probably in many respects one of the worst in the world in terms of the, the way in which the centre has dominated in particular, I think we're the only federation in the world, that is in the democratic, real federations, where the central government takes 80% of the taxes. This, is a, this would not be believed in other federations where states have their own independent taxation, the Commonwealth hasn't, the centre hasn't grasped everything. And as you know, the Commonwealth uses that <clears throat> To pressure the state. I read a very good book about 10 years ago by a, a fellow called uh, Professor David Flint and Jai Martinkovich, and it was called Bring Us, uh, Give Us Back Our Country. And it really was a fabulous book. And it was all about this question about how we are not a federation, we are a farce of a federation. And it's only getting worse. Now, it's very much not what the, the, the founding fathers of Australia proposed in the 1890s at the constitutional debate. Uh, well, look, I think I think a lot, of, a lot of the blame for it, actually, David, I do think goes to Alfred Deakin, who I think basically, I think Alfred Deakin's the most influential Australian who's ever lived. Uh, but he was, you know, basically a big centraliser 
Now, the, the really the heroic figure at that period was um, George Reid, the fabulous uh, Premier of New South Wales, and he was very reluctant for New South Wales, the mother colony, the biggest colony, the richest colony, he was very reluctant for Australia to join the Federation. And you know, when, you, when they had a vote uh, in 1898, you know, now uh, the other states voted yes. New South Wales, well, it, uh, it, it, they say that, that New South Wales voted no. In fact, what happened is there was so little interest uh, because New South Wales was unenthusiastic, particularly the New South Wales Parliament, which is where I'm sitting right now. They were very against federation, and George Reid was against federation. And then they made some concessions, and then they had another... Those concessions they made weren't too important. George Reid then very reluctantly in 1899 said he would vote in favour of the federation. But very interestingly, David, so then New South Wales did at the second vote say, OK, we'll join the federation. But Sydney, the city of Sydney twice voted no to joining Australia. And this was because we were a the free trade state. We were basically the libertarian state, and this is why we were successful. We didn't believe in a, a big government. And, and federation was very much driven by the Victorians. And then the Tasmanians and South Australians largely just copied the Victorians. And then Queenslanders were a bit reluctant. Western Australians came along late. But it was, yeah, when, when they voted in, in uh, Victoria, about whether we should federate. It was like about 90% of Victorians said, yes, 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 I can't wait. Now, in that fabulous book I wrote, uh, sorry, not I wrote, but I read of yours, uh, uh, Give Us Back Our Country, you pointed out uh, that, you know, you thought that the best-run country in the world was Switzerland. Now, that was saying something, David, because that is a not a constitutional monarchy, but you are saying even more important than that, well, and you're, you're obviously well-known as a an ardent constitutional monarchist, but in Switzerland, which is a republic, it is a fabulous federation. Uh, you know, the, the, the states, or what they call the cantons, really have a lot of power. You know, not the, the uh, Geneva doesn't have much power at all. Uh, but even the, 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 the canton governments don't have much power because they've got this tradition of often having citizens-initiated referendums. And so the people decide things that you don't hear about Swiss, big Swiss power struggles or big Swiss political scandals. The politicians are just not that important because the people are important. And I'm going to mention Switzerland in my upcoming maiden speech. I'm going to say, look, you know, I'm saying it's not a libertarian utopia, but out of the 200 countries on earth at the moment, it's the closest to it. And they have uh, all the statistics uh, are in Switzerland's favour. You know, high life expectancy, very low crime rate even though pretty much everyone's got a gun. Uh, they, you know, they, they had the lowest, in Western Europe, they had the lowest COVID vaccine uptake because the, the government's got nothing to do with the healthcare system in Switzerland. Uh, you know, everyone in Switzerland, they, they have a, um, uh, well, this is how it works in Switzerland for, for healthcare, and we know the government stuffs up everything, and we know that the private sector can deliver services more efficiently and, and, and better services. How it works in, in Switzerland with the, with the healthcare is uh, everybody, the government says, look, if you don't take out private health insurance, you'll pay a lot more in tax. So 99.5% of people have taken out private health insurance. And there's a thriving free sector market and there's lots of competition. So, you know, get your private health insurance through us. And it's all run by private. You know, 
the government doesn't have any nursing homes, doesn't have, pay any doctors, doesn't run any hospitals. Now, what are, we, what are they doing in Switzerland for uh, people on lower incomes? Well, the government gives them a voucher. The government says, and the, the voucher sort of phases out as the income goes up. A lot of people don't get any voucher, probably. I'm guessing 30% of people in Switzerland will get a voucher from the government of some description, and the voucher will say, this voucher can only be used to buy private health insurance. So even the poor people have got private health insurance. Now, it's just a fabulous system. And so people, and, and there, there are so many things about Switzerland which are so impressive, and it's because they've got the federation right. I've been alive for 52 years, David. It's, I cannot really remember a time where a state election in this country was fought over the issue of taxation. And taxation is the biggest thing. It's what government is at the end of the day. And so, but, but we don't think about it in this country. So, so we keep ending up with this increasingly powerful camera and the trend just goes on and on and on under the Liberal Party, under the Labor Party. And we, we're getting to the point where everything's run by camera. Now, now Australia, putting everything else aside, is a very big country. It's a very diverse country. The Northern Territory has really got nothing in common with Tasmania, uh, except that we're part of a single country. So, so what is going to be applicable to the Northern Territory is obviously going to be very difficult to what's uh, different to what is applicable to Tasmania. Now, we should have we should have thriving states. We should have a loose federation. You know, at the time of federation, David. Some of the people in the New South Wales Parliament, like George Reid and others, were arguing and they were, for a period. They were saying, look, we should be like New Zealand. New Zealand was invited along to the early uh, Federation debates. And after a meeting or two, they said, look, look, all the best to you, uh, Australian colonies. Um, you know, one day we'll become independent, but we'll, we'll, we'll be our own little country. And, and some people were saying that that's what Australia should be. We should, should have, the, the British colonies should have become independent from Britain when they did. You know, we, we reached a certain period level of maturity. Uh, and then we could have all been, you know, we could have had six little New Zealands here. Now, now I'm very happy that we've got Australia, and I think a federation is a very good thing, and particularly when it comes around national defence, but I think well, generally, generally Australians like each other. There's not much state animosity, and, and it makes us a more powerful country on the world stage. Um, but but we would be a much stronger country and we'd have been much more efficiently governed if we had much stronger state governments and far less powerful Canberra. I think this is a very important role that you will have and it will be a national role. Do you think, do you think it should be easier to be able to form new states? And I look particularly at Queensland where even at the time of federation, they were still talking about having three states rather than one. Yes, we absolutely believe uh, that there should be the smaller the states, the better. The closer the people are to their government, then the more the government will become, uh, it, it, it can't become a tyranny if it's a smaller government, and they'll be more responsive to what's needed in that particular area. Look, Australia ideally would have 30 states. Uh, yeah, in any particular locality, you know, that if, if, if the majority of people in that area uh, want to have their own state, and that, now that means they're going to be on their own, they're going to have to raise their own revenue, okay, and do their own spending and have their own little parliament, etc. Uh, and, you know, if we, we could have... Uh, the, the, the best thing about federation, of course, is that we learn from others. We learn from their mistakes. We learn from their successes. So we would... Now, now there, there's basically no... 
political di- uh, policy diversity amongst the states. I mean, really the last big one that I can remember was Joe Biogi Peterson abolished um, death duties and all the other states followed. Mm. Well, that was good. That was good that Joe Biogi Peterson led the way on that. But we don't have it now. And so, yes, look, there's, uh, I, I would absolutely be, I'd love to see a revival in, um, you know, having a discussion at least. But look, I think the, the, the obvious example, it would probably be North Queensland. You know, Cairns is a very, very long way away from Brisbane. It's a very, very big state. And look, I, I think also the, the northern end of uh, Western Australia, you know, not a big population, but they, you know, they could really, they could become like a new California up there. A new California in the north of Western Australia. What a fantastic idea. Who'd have thought? Now would be a good time to embark on that, given that the current California is descending into a dystopian nightmare of homeless drug addicts defecating on the previously salubrious sunny streets of the Sunshine State. Well, that's all from Save the Nation for tonight. David himself will be back next Tuesday at the usual time of 9pm. Good night.